welcome to the latest in our SMB Redress podcast series, in which members of the Stevenson Bolton Commercial Dispute Team cover key topics that we hope will be useful to our listeners. Today, we will be addressing jurisdiction. I'm Catherine Penny, a partner in our Commercial Disputes Team, and I'm joined by James Everson, a managing associate. Hello. So, James, the term jurisdiction has a number of meanings in different contexts. So can we quickly cover off uh, at the top what it means to us as a business dispute lawyer when we talk about jurisdiction? Uh, yes. So when we're talking about jurisdiction, we're, we're specifically talking about which forum, uh, typically a court or an arbitration tribunal, has the power to hear a dispute and administer justice. And often, but not always, the forum set out in the contract in a jurisdiction clause. And it's worth mentioning a bugbear of mine, which is that often jurisdiction and applicable law in a contract are merged together and people talk about them as if they're the same thing, but they are two distinct things. And ideally, though, both topics, jurisdiction and applicable law, will be dealt with in a contract. Um, that's right. But but often in the drafting process, little attention paid to, to these. They're treated as, as boilerplate um, clauses. And by the time we as litigators see it, we then might have to work with a jurisdiction that, that's been agreed that may not necessarily be um, one that we would have chosen. Exactly. And, and I think that's why we um, need to work with our colleagues in the non-contentious side of things, i.e. the contract negotiators, to um, work with them and ensure that they're thinking carefully about the advantages and practicalities of choosing where disputes are to be heard, because otherwise the client and the parties might find themselves disadvantaged if they have to pursue or defend claims in an unfriendly or unhelpful jurisdiction. Or worse still, you have to spend months arguing about what the proper jurisdiction is for any disputes, rather than arguing about the important commercial underlying issues. Um, and exactly. So the the initial questions that contract drafters need to ask themselves when considering jurisdiction are, firstly, whether you actually want a court to deal with the dispute. Um, for example, it may be that arbitration might provide a better forum for resolving it, uh, particularly if there's an international element um, to your agreement or if there are confidentiality issues in play. Um, we looked at that in the second podcast in this series. But for the purposes of today, though, we're going to assume that the parties don't want to refer the matter to arbitration. And the second issue to, to, to consider at the early stage is if a court process is preferred, which courts do you want uh, and where? And presumably the parties can agree whatever they like. So how how do they make that decision? Um, yes, well, there, there are a number of factors. Um, uh, it's fair to say that, that um, where the contracting entities are UK based with UK assets, it's usual to the English courts referred to as the um, as the jurisdiction for, for dispute. However, it, it can become contentious and sometimes parties will um, try to insist on their home courts being included in the contract. And where that arises, that the contract drafters need to think very carefully about things such as um, the quality of the courts in the jurisdiction that's being proposed, um, how quick is the process there, how good are the judges in dealing with complex technical points, um, and can you expect the judges to be impartial? Um, access to lawyers is another um, issue to consider. Is good independent legal advice available in that jurisdiction? Um, and the third issue to consider is, is the practicality and convenience of that jurisdiction to, to the parties. 
And a third issue to consider is the practicality and convenience of that particular jurisdiction to the parties. Does it make practical sense to have disputes heard in those courts? For instance, where witnesses are based um, in that area, you might want to, to consider it, although that's less of an issue these days with the technological advances that we've seen in, in recent years. And I think the sorts of challenges that you've talked about there around quality of courts and access to lawyers, they don't generally arise with the English courts that are given uh, here. We're lucky in that respect. So um, I think our advice would be if someone is insisting on an overseas jurisdiction going in your contract, it could be worth seeking local advice um, in that jurisdiction to find out what the situation on the ground is there. And also a key factor in all of this that we haven't touched on yet is to think about the enforcement of the judgment. That's to say, how easy would it be to get your cash or whatever it is that you're looking for uh, once you have a court judgment in your hand? That's right. It's an absolutely critical question. Um, and it's one that we'll be discussing in a later podcast. So coming back to jurisdiction, then we um, see jurisdiction clauses that are drafted as exclusive and also non-exclusive jurisdiction clauses. Can you explain the difference? Um, yes, uh, an exclusive jurisdiction clause simply means that the parties have agreed that the jurisdiction in the contract can be the only forum for resolving disputes. Um, exclusive jurisdictions intended to, to provide certainty. It does still happen though, parties do still start proceedings in breach of an exclusive jurisdiction clause, and that's where you, you would be looking at an anti-suit injunction. And then non-exclusive then? Non-exclusive jurisdiction clauses provide flexibility to the parties, um, and although these sorts of clauses will nominate the courts of a country to hear the dispute, it won't necessarily stop court proceedings being brought in another jurisdiction. And the obvious risk with this approach is that it potentially leaves a defendant having to defend proceedings in an unfavourable jurisdiction. So we generally advise against the non-exclusive jurisdiction clause, especially post-Brexit, as it can complicate enforcement. Grand. And you mentioned earlier, I think, that by the time we as litigators come to a matter, we generally have to deal with whatever's been agreed in the contract. Um, but I think it's worth touching on um, the situation where there isn't a contract or there's no jurisdiction clause in your contract. And without getting into the detail on that, um, then there is there are notions of private international law which plug the gaps on that and provide an answer. Um, but it's it isn't always, if ever, a straightforward one to figure out. So it's well worth including a, a written agreement about jurisdiction if you can. So, James, do you feel up to talking us through the basics? What if a contract has been drafted, it doesn't have a jurisdiction clause and a dispute crops up? How does a company know if it can bring a claim in the English court? Well, in terms of a dispute involving a party based in the EU, before Brexit, the position was that a defendant should be sued in the courts of its own country, or if it's a breach of contract claim, where the contract was performed. Now, since Brexit, the question of establishing jurisdiction of the English court where none's been formally agreed has become a little bit more complex. There's no special rules for EU countries anymore, so it's just the general law that applies, and it's the same whether it's Europe or the rest of the world. In essence, the English courts want to see a connection with England and Wales to be happy to hear the dispute. For instance, the contractual performance was here, the breach was here, or the damage was suffered here. You'll hear talk of the common law principle of forum convenience. Lawyers love Latin maxims, but this just means the proper place for the dispute to be heard. The English civil procedure rules 
have what are called jurisdictional gateways that pave the way to the English courts. And they're thought of as being more generous than the previous EU regime. So if a party can satisfy a court that one of the gateways is satisfied and should open, then it should be able to convince the English court to hear the dispute. So if your opponent is overseas, you need to get your case through one of those gateways. And we're not going to go into too much detail about the gateways. Um, but if your opponent is present in England, even if just for a short time, you can serve them in the when they're in the country and the court will accept jurisdiction on that basis. Or another scenario is if they've appointed someone to accept service on their behalf in the UK. But if your opponent isn't in the UK and you want to sue them here before you head overseas, the, U the English court will, generally speaking, have to agree to it first. So you have to seek the court's permission to serve an English court claim anywhere other than in England. This is all pretty complicated stuff, but the practical point should be that including a jurisdiction clause in your contract, including about how the proceedings themselves will be served, will avoid, hopefully anyway, having to get into arguments about jurisdiction. Absolutely. And as litigators, we would really stress that it's important to make sure that those clauses are properly considered and drafted based on the particular context of the contract uh, and not just thrown in at the last minute using a, a boilerplate provision. Wise words. Thanks very much, James, for joining me. And I hope that that has been a useful overview uh, about jurisdiction. Thanks very much. <laughs>